Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another one of our weekly podcasts. My name is Richard. On behalf of Journey Community Church in Fontana, we thank you for tuning in. This week, we're going to be hearing from Pastor Chris as we take a look at finding Jesus in the Old Testament. Well, now with all that said and done, let's go ahead and dive into this week's message with Pastor Chris. morning we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 53. Now there are some texts, there are some chapters that are just really the holy of holies in scripture. When I think of Genesis 1, when I think of Romans chapter 8, when I think of John chapter 3, these are texts that come to my mind that really the word of God just stands out and it's so big and it's so bright and the message is so profound that it's almost unbelievable. And so this morning, we're gonna look at Isaiah chapter 53, and this is what I need us to do. Look at this text with fresh eyes because we have been so conditioned to hear our sins have been forgiven. We have been so used to hearing Jesus died for our sins. We've been so just almost have just come to take for granted eternal life, that we lose the power of this text because we've just been so used to hearing the good news. And so today, imagine for the first time, you've never heard of Jesus. You don't know that the wrath of God is on you. You don't know what the Lord did for you and see how profound the text becomes. So let's think about the prophet Isaiah. We're starting now into the prophets. Jesus told the people that the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms were written about him. And we saw the law of Moses in Jesus. Last week, we were looking at the Psalms and how all the Psalms point to the person of Christ. And now we're entering into the portion of scripture of the prophets. And the prophets are broken up into two groups, major prophets and minor prophets. Who are the major prophets? and there's one more yep and one more no Daniel and those are the major prophets so you have Isaiah you have Jeremiah you have Ezekiel and you have Daniel those are the major prophets they wrote tons of of um you know, writings and verses and just turned out to be very big books with a lot of information that God used through these holy men. And so Isaiah then writes his great book known as the book of Isaiah. And it has 66 chapters in the book of Isaiah. And it's been known as the whole Bible in miniature form. Because the book of Isaiah has all the major theological um, themes of the book found in its entirety in the book of Isaiah. How many books does the Bible have? 66. And Isaiah has 66 chapters. And when you look at how Isaiah breaks down, it's very similar to how the Holy Scripture breaks down. Isaiah first starts off with judgment and God's wrath. Do you know how many chapters of the 66 deal with God's judgment and wrath? 39. 39 of the 66 chapters deal with God saying, you are falling short. And so he's calling Israel, repent, come back, turn your way, follow after me, do the right things, come home. Over and over and over again, God is crying out to Israel, come home, be right. The wrath is coming upon you if you refuse to repent. And so Isaiah comes in chapter one, two, three, four, and five, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, you're a sinner. The whole country is an absolute immoral sin. And in Isaiah chapter 39 and verse five, Isaiah says this to King Hezekiah. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all that your fathers have laid up and stored up to this day will be carried away to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. God is saying, repent, 
or you're going to be judged. Repent or you're going to be judged. And did the nation of Israel repent? No. And so what happened? Babylon came in three waves. It started in 605 BC and it ended in 583 BC. So it took about 20 years or so. And in three deportations, Babylon came, took Israel or Judah captive into Babylon for 70 years. Just like God said would happen. You don't repent, judgment is coming. And then we get to Isaiah 40 through 66. And Isaiah hits an emergency break. Like he just parachutes out. The message changes so radically. We go from 39.5, Babylon is coming, to uh, chapter 40 and verse 1. Comfort, oh comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Chapter 40 through 66 goes from judgment and wrath to salvation by God's grace. It's so radical that for centuries, even people within the church would teach that there were two prophet Isaiahs, that the first prophet came earlier, wrote the first 39 chapters of, of sin and judgment and God's wrath. And then there was another Isaiah who wrote about God's glory and his grace and his salvation to those whom he calls. But we know that in 1947, in the Qumran caves, there were these big old pots that were found known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. And inside those pots was the Great Isaiah Scroll. And they took that Great Isaiah Scroll and they sent it to three different labs in the world to carbon fiber test it and to validate and verify that it is actually authentic. It came back authentic, written between the times of 300 and 100 BC, before Christ verifying that the prophet Isaiah was one author who wrote from chapter one through chapter 66. Now, when we get to chapter 66, listen to this. Isaiah chapter 66 and starting at verse 17. Isaiah, oh, I'm sorry, Isaiah 66, starting at verse 22. For just as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, will endure before me, declares the Lord. So your offspring and your name will endure. And it shall be from new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all mankind will come to bow down before me, says the Lord. Then they will go forth and look on the corpses of men who have transgressed against me, for their worm will not die and their fire will not be quenched and they will be an abhorrence to all mankind. Does that passage sound familiar to us? Have we heard that somewhere before? The new heavens, the new earth, Jerusalem, people coming to the king, the second death. Revelation chapter 21. In Revelation chapter 21, verse 21 John writes this, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Where'd he get that from? The prophet Isaiah. And of course, the Holy Spirit who's giving him the unction. And there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is among men and he will dwell among them and they shall be his people and God himself will be among them and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain for the first things have passed away. 
And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. And then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and I am the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without costs. He who overcomes will inherit these things and I will be his God and he will be my son. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, there will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So you have sin, wrath, judgment, and then you have grace, salvation, and an everlasting life and kingdom with God forever. What happened? Where was the transition? How did this take place? Isaiah chapter 53 is our answer. Isaiah chapter 53 is our answer. Now here's something that's a little bit sneaky. Isaiah chapter 53 and the suffering servant actually starts in chapter 52. The, the, the names and the chapters and the verse numbers, they are not ordained by God the Holy Spirit. They've been done by men so that we can reference back to them quickly. And unfortunately, they whiffed in a very, very big way. And so Isaiah chapter 52 and verse 13 is where we start. Isaiah 52, verse 13. This is part one of two messages. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account to him. For what had not been told them, they will see. And what they had not heard, they will understand. Isaiah 53, verse 1. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form nor majesty that we should look upon him nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him and by his scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray Each of us have turned aside to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of all of us to fall on him. And we're going to stop there and we'll take just that part of the text for this morning. So there's two things I want us to see in Isaiah 53 verses one through six, the castaway Christ and the suffering servant. In verses one through three, it's the castaway Christ. And it's exactly what we saw last week in the Psalms. When Jesus came and what did they do? Did they receive him or reject him? They rejected him. And last week we spent quite some time going through the Psalms, seeing how Judas in the Psalms betrayed Christ, how his own family didn't believe in him and how his own people rejected him in every way. So we're going to look at the castaway Christ verses one through three and the suffering servant verses four through six. So verse one, who has believed our message 
And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up, and the he is speaking of Jesus, this servant, before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men. So here's the question from Isaiah 53. Why was Jesus cast away? And the author gives us three reasons. In verse one, it was, be, or in verse two, it was because of his origin. In verse two B, it was because the middle of his life. And in verse three, it was because the end of his life. To answer it in a simple way, they hated Jesus from the beginning, in the middle, and in the end. They hated every aspect about him. Number one, they hated where he came from. Verse two says, Jesus grew up, or the suffering servant grew up before God the Father like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. Now, the word tender shoot in Hebrew is what we would know as a sucker's branch or a sucker branch. Does anybody know what a sucker branch is? What is a sucker branch? There you go. So a sucker branch is a, is a tree or a branch or a plant that was not planned. It was not uh, thought about. It, it was never in the blueprint. You go out to our front right here and you, our palm trees and they give all those seeds and you can see these shoots growing all in our front and they're little palm trees and they're growing all over. That's the sucker's branch. That is what this tender shoot is referring to. Jesus grew up before God the Father as this tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. In other words, Jesus was an anomaly. When he came to his people, they looked at him and they said, you are not what we were expecting. You are not according to our blueprints. This is not our Messiah, our King. You don't fit the plan. You don't fit the bill. You were never to be our Messiah. They hated his origin. Why? Because he was broke. He was a Nazarene and he came from God. That's why they hated him. The Jews looked at him being an agrarian society. Everyone knew what a sucker's uh, plant was. And they knew he did not belong. He just didn't fit our mold. And they hated him because, number one, he came from a poor family. He came from a poor family. Remember when they got Saul, the first king in Israel? Saul's dad was a mighty man, the scripture says. He was a man who had affluence, influence, power, authority. He was a man of war. He was somebody who the Jews looked up to. And so they saw Saul and they said, that's our dude. If he grows up like pops, he's going to be fantastic. The Jews thought really their king was going to be of blue blood, someone from a great family name. And Jesus was, he was the son of David, but they just didn't know it. So they saw the Lord coming from a very poor, broke family. And they said, no, no, no. He's the tender shoot. We didn't, he's the one that was not planned to be this way. How do we know that Jesus came from a poor family? When Mary and Joseph went to give sacrifice before the Lord there in the temple, what did they offer to God? Did they take a, a beautiful lamb without spot or blemish? What did they offer? Why? Because the book of Leviticus says if, if a family can't afford a sacrificial lamb, then let that poor family take two turtle doves. And Mary and Joseph took two turtle doves. They were a very poor family, and the Jewish people hated that. The second thing was he was a Nazarene. Remember, Jesus came in John chapter 1, and he was talking to the boys, and they hear of Jesus of Nazareth. And what was the response? Can anything good come Nazareth? Nazareth? 
those that was like Nazareth would be like what Palmdale is to us, right? It's all the all the convicts from LA, they got shipped out there and you know, they're just out there doing their own thing. Can anything good come out of Palmdale? Probably not, right? And so they hear Nazareth and they're like, can anything good come from that place? They hated he was poor. They hated he was a Nazarene, although he, they didn't know he was born in the city of David, in David, like his forefathers. But the third thing is, and what they really hated about Jesus was that he was sent from God. And because the natural man hates God, and we're going to look at that, and the natural attitude is hostile towards God, they automatically hated Christ. Jesus would come to them and, and, and share with them, I'm the bread of life, come down from heaven, over and over and over again, and they wanted to kill him because they hated his origin. He did not fit the mold. See, the Jews today, they think the Messiah is going to be a man. They believe that. And he is going to be a politician and he is going to change politics and change the world and Israel is going to be number one in the world. And they believe that. And so here's Jesus saying, I have been sent from God himself. And they say, no, 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 that's the tender shoot. That's the the seed that we didn't plant. We're not buying it. We don't want anything to do with it. So they hated the Lord fully because he was from God. Now, Isaiah, Isaiah tells us a parable in Isaiah chapter five, and I'll read it to you. Isaiah chapter five, verse one, it says this, let me sing now for my well-beloved, a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones, planted it in the choicest vine, and he built a tower in the middle of it, and he hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it only produced worthless ones. Verse 3, and now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do with my vineyard that I have not done with it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now, let me tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it will be consumed. I will break down its walls and it will become trampled ground. I will lay it waste and it will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up and I will also charge the clouds to rain no rain on it. Verse seven, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah, his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. God looked for righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. Why is this parable so important? Because the Lord comes in his ministry and he teaches in parables. And one of the parables he teaches about is this vineyard from Isaiah. And in Luke chapter 20, verse 9, Jesus is speaking before the people and he begins to tell this parable in Luke 20, verse nine. A man planted a vineyard and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey for a long time. So the vineyard is Israel. The man is God. God planted Israel and then God says, okay, now you're in charge. And he gave it to the vine dressers, the people in charge of the vineyard. Those would be the religious leaders, the councils, the judges, the people in charge of ruling and reigning and and leading God's people into a holy relationship with himself. At the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers so that they would give him some of the produce of the vineyard. But the vine growers beat him and sent him away empty handed. 
And he proceeded to send another slave. And they beat him also and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he proceeded to send a third. And this one also they wounded and they cast out. Those slaves that God sent to the vineyard were the prophets, were the holy men. God would send holy men to preach to Israel, to reap and bear fruit, and they bore none. Why did Stephen get killed in Acts chapter 7? Because he called them out for this very thing. He says, you stiff-necked and hard-hearted people, like your fathers, which one of them didn't kill the prophets? It was a condemnation on Israel that everyone God said, sent to them, they ended up killing. So God, Jesus is telling this parable. They sent the last slave or the last prophet and Israel cast them out. Then verse 13, the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the vine growers saw him, they reasoned with one another saying, this is the heir, let us kill him so that the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy the vine growers and give the vineyard to others. When they heard it, they said, may it never be. But Jesus looked at them and said, what it is, is what then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief corner stone. Remember from last week, we looked at the Psalms and we looked at that particular Psalm and we looked at the rabbinical teaching that the rabbis in building the first temple sent the cornerstone to the builders. They looked at the blueprints and they said, this doesn't fit. It's just like the tender shoot. It's not according to plan. We didn't design this. So they rejected it and threw it away. And what Jesus is saying is, I'm the chief cornerstone. I'm the tender shoot. I came to my people and they knew me not. Why? Because of his origin, his beginnings. He didn't fit, he didn't foot the bill. Number two, because of his looks, believe it or not, because of his looks, to be. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him. And that is look upon him in adoration, to want to be like him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. They hated his origin, so they rejected him. And the castaway Christ was set aside because he didn't look good. They thought their king would be some 664 guy with a chiseled chest and six pack, you know, like uh, Goliath or even like the first King Saul, someone who was head and shoulders above the rest. They were even looking for someone like David, someone like David who was a good looking and handsome. But when they looked at Christ, they didn't see any of that. Here's the newsflash. Jesus wasn't a good looking guy. He was very average at best and possibly even below average when at stature and looks and everything else. Why was King Saul made king of Israel? They saw him and they said, he is immaculate to look at. He's amazing. He's our king. And so they wanted Jesus to fit their profile, and it just didn't. And that's why the Bible says God or man looks on the outward appearance. We look on how good look someone looks, what their skin color is, how well dressed they are, what they wear or don't wear, you know, how good they smell and all the rest. We're always looking on the outward appearance, trying to put some kind of profile together on how to judge an individual. But the Bible says God looks on the heart. And so the Jews looked on external, God's looking on the heart. And of course, Christ's heart was righteous. They hated his origin. They rejected him because he didn't look the part. And verse three, 
Uh, they rejected him and they hated him. And we'll see in verse three, he was despised and forsaken of men, of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hid, hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Verse three says they hated his ending. He was despised and forsaken of men. So Jesus, he was arrested in the garden of Gethsemane and he's being taken away to go on trial. What, what happened with all of his apostles, his disciples? Scattered, why? They were afraid, but also so that the scripture can be fulfilled that Zechariah the prophet wrote, smite the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. And so look at Jesus. They're seeing him being arrested. He's being slapped. He's being beaten. He's having his, his beard ripped out. He was despised and forsaken of men. Imagine being on the cross, okay? And God the Father, God the Father has forsaken you. And then you look and every other being, every other human being has forsaken you too. At the cross, his only advocates was Mary and John the apostle. Everyone else forsook him. They could not imagine their Messiah dying. That didn't fit the bill. It, it didn't fall into the plans. The Jews believe this, that a man is going to come and that man is going to revolutionize Israel. He is going to be their redeemer. He is going to be their revolutionary. And he is going to lead them away. And that's why Jesus, when uh, Joseph or John and um, James's mom came to him, she asked him a, them a, Jesus a question. She said, can my uh, sons sit on your left and your right in your kingdom, when you inherit your kingdom. And Jesus says, you don't even know what you're asking. Fast forward a couple days, if she got her wish, they would have been on his left and on his right. Never in the Jewish mind did they see Messiah dying. Never. That's why when Jesus says the Messiah must suffer and must die, uh, Peter rebuked Jesus. It, it may it never be, it can't be. This does not fit our script. This is not who we understand the Messiah to be. They hated his beginning. They hated his middle, his ministry, how he looked, and they hated his ending. That his life ultimately ended up on the cross. He was despised and he was rejected. And why was that? Because we did not esteem him at all. Now we get to verse four through six, the suffering servant. For surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities and the chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned aside to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. So this is what is known as the substitutionary atonement death of G Jesus Christ. That's the theological um, term, substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. The word atonement just means to satisfy or to appease, to check all the boxes, to meet the requirement. 
And the word substitution means to stand in, in place of another. When the quarterback goes out and he blows out his knee, the substitute quarterback takes his place. He stands in place of another. So the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ or atonement of Jesus Christ is Jesus standing in our place to meet God's requirements of salvation. And God's requirements is, is perfection always in all ways. So Jesus stood in our place, filled the gap to do what we couldn't do so that we could be with God. So the substitutionary atonement has two things. One, it's what we give to Jesus. Two, it's what Jesus then gives to us. And it's called the great exchange. And in verses four through six, we see the righteousness of Christ. And we also see the depravity of man. Verse four, we see our depraved attitudes towards Christ. Verse five, we see our depraved actions towards God. And in verse six, we see the depraved nature of humanity. So let's look at the, the substitutionary atonement for our sins. Verse four, surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Now the word griefs is the, what we would know as physical ailments. Our physical ailments, Christ bore. And then it says, and our sorrows he carried. The Hebrew word for sorrows is internal anguish. So Christ came and our physical objective ailments, cancer, the broken bones, the kidneys that aren't working, the mind that's not functioning right, all of these things Christ came to bear. And then internally, our subjectivity, our feelings, our emotions, depressions, our anxieties, our stresses and worries, he also came to carry away. Jesus came for our ailments. Now, the words bore and the words carry away are two terms that are really important. And we would just, because we don't read Hebrew and we don't read it in Hebrew, we just read right through them. But the word bore and the word carry are fundamental in the fact that it's describing the atoning sacrifice of Leviticus 16. In Leviticus 16, you have Yom Kippur or the day of atonement, the day in which the nation Israel is being made right before God again. And so in Leviticus 16, I'll read it to you. Leviticus 16, starting at verse seven, the high priest would then go in verse seven and he shall take two goats and present them before the Lord at the doorway of the tent of meeting. Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. Then Aaron shall offer the goat on which the lot for the Lord fell and make it a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot for the scapegoat fell shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it, to send it into the wilderness as the scapegoat. Verse 20. When he finishes atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall offer the live goat. Then Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the sons of Israel and all their transgressions in regard to all their sins. He shall lay on them the head of the goat and send it away. It's the same term as carry into the wilderness by the hand of the man who stands in readiness. The goat shall bear, same phrase and term as Christ bearing our sin, on itself all their iniquities to a solitary land, and he shall release the goat into the wilderness. So going back to Isaiah, this idea that our infirmities will be placed on Christ is the idea of the atonement sacrifice. God is going to deal with our sin offering through the sacrificing of one of the goats. That was the lamb of God that was shed for the sins of the world. The second one 
all the sins would be cast upon the scapegoat. There would be a a scarlet cord tied around the scapegoat and it would be sent off. And the idea is that goat is bearing, bearing and carrying our sins, our infirmities, all, all, all our ailments and uh, problems from the sin of the nation, and it's gone. As far as the east is from the west, that scapegoat is to leave the city and to never come back. The idea is the sin has permanently been done away with. Jesus being our substitutionary atonement means he was the goat that died and he was our scapegoat in which we can escape God's wrath. Here's the fascinating thing. In Leviticus 16, it says, cast lots for the two goats. And then it says a very fascinating thing. Oh, I missed. It says this, uh, Aaron shall cast lots, verse eight, Leviticus 16, for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. This is fascinating because the Lord's lot is the animal that does what? Dies. Fascinating that God would take upon himself and slay himself in atoning for Israel through the sacrificial system. So we go back to chapter four. Our physical infirmities and our uh, internal struggles and sorrows, Christ, our scapegoat, has been given He carries, he bears, and the idea is he then removes it from you forever. Now look at the response. That's the righteousness of Christ. Look at the unrighteousness of man. And man, or verse four, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. They looked at Jesus When he is being crucified, they looked at him when he's in his ministry and they say, he's not the lamb of God. He's not sent from God. No, he's a blasphemer. And all the reasons why he is despised and rejected and abandoned is because he himself is being judged by God. They saw Jesus as the sinner and they themselves as the holy ones, and they were protecting God, just like Saul of Tarsus, when in reality, they were the sinners against God, and Christ came for their benefits. In uh, Matthew chapter 26, starting at verse 59, I'll just read it to you. In Matthew 26, starting at verse 59. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so they might put him to death. They did not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. But later on, two came forward and said, this man stated, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said to him, do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silence. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore the robes and said, He has blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have now heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they answered, He deserves death. And if you just flip the page to Matthew 28, 38, you see them on the cross blaspheming and blaming and saying that it's because of his sin. God is doing that to him. That is the the depravity of the human condition. Christ came for us. And how does the average, how does the world look at Christ? When we stub our, soul, we stub our toe, we say, Jesus Christ. It's never Buddha. It's never Muhammad. 
It's never a, a good philosopher. It's never a good president that we take the Lord's name in vain. It's always Jesus. People don't get really upset when you uh, invite them to be a good person or to be a loving person. People get really upset when they, you invite them to be a Christian because they have to look at their lives and see themselves for who they really are, a sinner in need of a savior. Jesus came and the attitude was toward him hostile. Why? Because Romans 8, 5 says this, for those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the spirit, the things of the spirit, for the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. They blame Christ for blaspheming God and crucifying him when they themselves were the blasphemers. So Jesus came in verse four to take away our sorrows as our scapegoat and our attitude, the natural man towards Christ, we are uh, antagonists towards. Verse five and six, but he was pierced for, through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourgings, we are healed. So Isaiah was written in 700 BC. The first crucifixion ever recorded was 518 BC, which means Isaiah wrote this 200 years before crucifixion was even invented. About 500 years before the Roman army or Roman Empire ever even became a republic. And this was all carbon fiber dated and verified predating Christ. It's all here. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. First Peter chapter two and verse 24. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds, you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardians of your souls. Bible says, he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might be the righteousness of God in him. And then all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. So verse four, we see the attitudes towards Christ. Verse five, we see our actions towards Christ. Why did Jesus die? For us, because of us. Our transgressions, Jesus didn't go and transgress. Jesus didn't make you go and sin. You did it. You did it yourself. You chose to willingly disobey and violate God's law. Christ came to make right what you messed up. He came for our transgressions. He came for our iniquities. And he came for our chastening. In Romans 7, and we can all say amen to this, it's the struggle it's the struggle between the old life and the new life. The things that I want to do, these are the things I don't do. How many of us as Christians say, I want to pray more. I want to read my Bible more. I want to give more. I want to serve more. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And then Paul goes and says, but the things I don't want to do, these are the things I tend to practice. Sin things. I don't want to do those things. I don't want to dishonor God, but these are the things I tend to practice. And then he says this statement, oh, wretched man that I am, who can deliver me from this body of death? And that body of death was, it was a torture by the Romans. The Romans would tie two uh, people committed to death together. They would chain them together and they would just let them go. Eventually one person dies 
and the other person has to carry around the body of death. And that's the picture that Paul is, is giving. He's saying, our new man is alive. Our old man is dead, and we got to lug him around with us. And that old nature causes us to stray away from God because like sheep, we've all gone astray. It's our nature. But God has called us to come back. So our nature is like sheep, we've gone astray. Our actions, our transgressions against God, our attitudes are blasphemous towards the Lord. And yet he takes all of that and the second part of substitutionary atonement is Romans 8. Jesus takes our bad and he gives us our good. We are co-heirs of Christ and heirs of God, Romans chapter 8 says. I said a lot of words in the last hour, but listen to that. We are co-heirs of God and co-heirs of Christ according to God's will and testament. According to God's will and testament, we're heirs of God and co-heirs of Christ. What does God possess? And we are heirs of God and co-heirs of Christ, written in the Lamb's book of life, which is nothing more than God's will and testament for his people. Everything is God's. We gave Christ death and he died for us and he gave us eternal life. We gave Christ darkness and he gave us light. We gave God or Christ ridicule and he gives us praise. It is a complete 180. How is it? How is it that that Isaiah can go from Babylon's coming to chapter 40. Comfort, oh, comfort my people, says your God. Let me read chapter 40 and verse three. A voice is calling. Clear the way of the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in a desert, a highway for our God. Who says that in the New Testament? John the Baptist. He's coming and he says, make ready the way of the Lord. And here comes Jesus, the Lamb of God, to take away the sin of the world. So next, actually not next week. Next week, we're going to look at sexual immorality. I don't know if you know this, but churches from around North America are coming together on the topic of sexual immorality because of some laws that Canada has passed. And so we're going to look at that. And so churches from all over, we're going to be talking about that topic The following week, we're going to look at Isaiah chapter 53, part two. We're going to look at the silent servant and the conquering Christ. So with that, let's pray and get right into communion. And that is the end of this week's podcast. We thank you for joining us for another inspiring message. If you enjoyed this teaching, please take a moment and share it with others. If you're interested and would like to find out more information about our location, time of worship service, or even what ministries we offer, we encourage you to visit our Facebook page at Journey Community Church Fontana, where you can find all that information and more. Again, on behalf of Journey Community Church in Fontana, we thank you for tuning in. Have a blessed week, and we'll see you here next time.